Good afternoon. If you have a Bible, if you could take it and please turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter together as we continue through our series in the book of Acts. Let me kind of bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us or if you're like me and don't have a great memory. Um, At the beginning of Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent out from the, the church in Antioch, you remember, by the leading of the Spirit and by the unified will of the people that were in that fellowship. They were uh, one of, if not the first, missionary teams to be commissioned by a New Testament church. And their journey uh, west to Cyprus and then to modern-day Turkey was a significant step in seeing the gospel taken from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus had commanded uh, the, the disciples to do and as Luke is tracing for us here in the book of Acts. But remember, beyond just a simple history of the expansion of the church, the book of Acts is an invitation for every generation of believers to join in on what God is, what God is doing, to join in on this unstoppable, ever-expanding, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all peoples for the glory of God. And in that description of the expansion and this call to join in, we find instruction for what it looks like for us to be a part of this worldwide movement of the Word of God. Two weeks ago, we watched with these brothers who were sent out from Antioch, we watched as they went to Barnabas's home island of Cyprus, and they shared the good word with, with the people there. And then we spent last week in Pisidian Antioch, hearing Paul preach in a Jewish synagogue. Uh, we saw that in response to that message, many wanted to hear more about what Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming, namely that Jesus was the Messiah that came to announce forgiveness of sins and freedom from seeking righteousness through personal obedience to the law. Some people wanted to hear that message, but others were jealous, were hard-hearted, such that Paul and Barnabas eventually just shook the the dust of that city off their feet and headed southeast to the city of Iconium. And now here in chapter 14, as we move with them from Antioch to Iconium, and then on to Lystra, and Derby before coming back through all those previous cities that they had been to were taught a significant lesson. And this is what we're taught, that the path of the faithful follower of Jesus always goes through troubles on the way to the kingdom of God. The path of the faithful follower of Jesus always, always goes through troubles on the way to the kingdom of God. There's a children's song called Going on a Bear Hunt. Have you ever sang that song? And you usually slap your legs as you're going on the bear hunt. And and in the song, there's different variations of this song. But as the children are going on a bear hunt, which I wouldn't recommend ever taking children on a bear hunt, uh, just if you have dreams of doing that. Um, But as they're going on this bear hunt, they encounter different obstacles. There's rivers and there's, there's mud, and there's caves. And at each obstacle, before they, they meet this bear, at each difficulty, they, you sing something. You say, I can't go over it, and I can't go under it, and you can't go around it. You've got to go through it. You've got to go through it. 
And as I was reading this chapter and trying to think more and more about what unified it and what it was trying to say to, to us and this generation and to all generations of believers, it was that word through, specifically in verse 22, that stood out to me. And this idea that Paul tells all believers in his day and on this particular day, he tells us all that it's through tribulations. It's through hardships that we must enter the kingdom of God. That the the path of the faithful follower of Jesus doesn't go over, it doesn't go under, it doesn't go around, but rather the path of the faithful follower of Jesus always goes through troubles on the way to the kingdom of God. And if that's true, if troubles and hardships are an inevitable part of the path that we are on, then how should we think about them on this journey of life? How do we keep ourselves from just wanting to go around troubles or from sailing home when times get tough or from complaining and growing bitter and getting jealous and getting angry? and getting depressed when hardships come upon us? How do we go through troubles for the glory of God until the day that we finally enter his kingdom? Those are the kind of questions that I want us to think about as we look at Acts 14, as we think about going through the troubles that face us on the path that leads to the kingdom of God. And so I want to read this chapter together with that in mind. As we go through, you're going to hear a number of cities and regions, which you should be able to find on this, this map behind me, or maybe you've got one in the back of your, your Bible. Hopefully, my, my hope is that seeing dots on a map will help you sort of follow this, this trip, which from Antioch, round trip back to Antioch, was probably close to a thousand miles from beginning to end, if you can imagine that. And, and that as you see those dots on a map and you trace the different areas, that will actually help us um, follow through this chapter. This chapter is geographically broken down. So they, we're going to watch um, Paul and Barnabas move to different cities. Um, kids, you're going to hear some city names, places like Iconium and Lystra and Derby, and hear some cool stories about what's going on in there. I know some of you like to draw things. You might want to draw what happens in Iconium. You might really want to draw what happens in Lystra. There's some cool things and unique things that happen there. But as we read through this chapter, listen to those place names and you'll see what's going on in each city that Paul and Barnabas end up in. Let's read God's word beginning in Acts 14 verse 1. It says, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of, of Lycania, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. 
He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in like a Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, they made many and made many and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, them, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been com commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remain no little time with the disciples. Let's begin by just sort of walking through this text. There's a lot of information here, but I just want to point out some details and make sure we understand everything that's, that's going on here. And then we're going to zero in on this big idea that the path of a faithful follower of Jesus always goes through troubles on the way to the kingdom of God. And think about some practical application related to that. But first, we just notice in verses 1 through 7 that, that Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium. Their method of ministry remains the same as it had been in Antioch. They enter into the synagogue of that city, and once again, they proclaim the gospel to the Jews and the God-faring Greeks who had gathered there. And they preach in such a way that both Jews and, and Greeks believe. We imagine probably that Paul's sermon on that occasion was similar to the one that we find in chapter 13 and, and to everything that happened there. But Luke chooses to summarize what probably was very similar to what happened in, in chapter 13. He summarizes all that happened in Iconium with just one verse of what Paul said in the synagogue. Uh, the sermon was probably similar and the response certainly was, was similar as the Jews there 
refused to believe in Jesus, many of them did, and those that did refuse to believe in Jesus stirred up people to oppose Paul and Barnabas. It says they poisoned their minds. There's a slight difference here, though. In Antioch, in chapter 13, verse 50, it tells us that that the leaders stirred up the leading people of the city. That's who was stirred up. But And I would imagine they were probably also Jewish people. But here, it's the Gentiles who are stirred up. The Jews, who wouldn't eat with Gentiles, who would rarely speak with Gentiles, are now stirring them up and poisoning their minds against those that are proclaiming forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Sinclair Ferguson says of this that, quote, strange alliances against the word of God and the gospel of Christ are always the work of Satan. Strange alliances against the word of God and the gospel of Christ are always the work of Satan. So people who normally hate each other may find themselves united under the umbrella of opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a demonic action to unite with other people, to keep people from hearing the good news. We can think about the fact that the Holy Spirit unites people across all dividing lines. And the satanic spirit of opposition to the gospel unites people. But it unites them and creates these strange partnerships that causes people to to push against the gospel. And so we shouldn't be surprised when strange alliances and strange partnerships form to oppose the gospel. We shouldn't be surprised by them and we shouldn't be scared away by them. In verse 3, the response of Paul and Barnabas to this united opposition was not to shorten their stay in Iconium, but to lengthen it. And by God's grace and through his spirit to speak more boldly, which, which they did. And along with their bold proclamation, the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace through signs and wonders done through the hands of Paul and Barnabas. This likely means that God strengthened them to heal people and to perform wonders there in Iconium. And these signs and wonders were not meant to exalt themselves, nor to to gather followers who love displays of power, nor to amass wealth so that they could purchase private jets for their missionary journeys. These, these signs and wonders bore witness to the truth of the good news that they were proclaiming. The, these things were witnesses to the word of God's grace. They were gracious signs attached to a message of grace. Signs and wonders are never an end in and of themselves, but rather a means of authenticating the gospel and calling people down this difficult road of discipleship. Despite these uh, strong, bold proclamation and these miraculous signs, though, the, the city was divided. The opponents of Paul and Barnabas were so jealous that they plotted to stone them. But in God, God's kindness, they caught wind of this and they fled to another area. So just pause for a minute because we hear these stories. Feel the weight a little bit of what happened in Iconium. In the midst of sharing the gospel for many days, These brothers hear that there are people in the town that are planning to kill them by throwing stones at them because they are preaching the gospel. And upon hearing this, they they leave town and they don't head for the coast so that they can get on a boat and head back to Antioch. No, they, they head southeast to Lystra so that they can preach the gospel somewhere else. 
So we get to Lystra in, in verse 8. The experience in Lystra is different from Antioch and Iconium. We don't find Paul and Barnabas in the synagogue to start with, probably because this city was more influenced by the worship of the Greek gods than by the God of Israel. There may, in fact, have not been a synagogue in Lystra for them to go to. This may have been more of a, a rural town. It was a rural town, but it was no more or no less in need of the gospel. It sounds like on this day that was described at the beginning of verse 8 that they were probably near the entrance of the city, uh, which is where I imagine this lame man would have been. He would may, may have sat there and begged um, to support himself. And we can imagine Paul preaching there in the open air at the gate of the city in the shadow of Zeus's temple to everyone who would listen to him. And as he's preaching, he notices this lame man is, is listening closely. Preachers always notice when people are listening closely. And we know when you're sleepy too. But not only is this man listening closely, but, but Paul knew in his spirit that this man had, it says, he had faith to be made well. What did that look like? How did Paul know? How did the Spirit communicate that? But this man, he knew that this man had faith to be made well. And so maybe in the middle of the sermon, or maybe when he was done, what a great conclusion to a sermon, right? In the, at whatever point Paul loudly says, so that everyone can hear, he says to this man, stand up on your feet. And the man, probably a little surprised, but full of faith, stands up and begins walking. I, there's no doubt in my mind that this is meant to be parallel to the story earlier in Acts where Peter heals a man who was lame from birth. A lot of the same language is used there. And the parallel shows that the Spirit of God that was with Peter was now also with Paul. But it also shows that, that the pagan people of Lystra needed the gospel and could be changed by the gospel just as much as the people in Jerusalem who saw that first miracle and heard the gospel proclaimed. That the gospel is for all people, changes all people, is needed by all people, no matter who they are or where they're from or what their background is. Now what's very different here in Acts 3, or different here from, from what we see earlier in Acts, is that the, the watching crowd responds to this miracle by assuming that Paul and Barnabas are gods. Gods that have come to the earth, which eventually leads to them trying to offer sacrifices to them. The background of this seems to be, I read this a couple places, it seems to be this widely circulated story that had happened not too long beforehand of, of Zeus and Hermes, who are mentioned here, coming to earth and looking for some shelter. And they were rejected by a thousand households. And then finally this one man let them in. And in response, the, the gods blessed this man's household and they destroyed the thousand others. And so there's this, um, this story, this, this uh, piece of lore that's attached to that area. And so the people in Lystra think Zeus and Hermes have come back and we don't want to be like those guys beforehand who didn't offer sacrifices, didn't welcome them in. And so they want to appease these potential gods by sacrificing a bull to them. This miracle of grace was meant to attest to the gospel of grace, but it's now turned into a catalyst for works that are meant to appease a false god. That's how our minds twist things. And since they're making all their plans in the local dialect, Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's happening until it's almost too late. 
you kind of can picture this scene. All of a sudden, this priest from Zeus's temple comes out, and he's he's got a bull. And they look and say, "Is that a is that a knife in his hand? What is going on here?" And and when they finally figure out what's happening, they rush into the middle of the crowd and they plead with them to stop saying that we're men. We're we're men with the same nature as you. We're not divine. We are human. And they they then appeal to them based on the fact that God is the creator of all things, that they they shouldn't worship lesser gods, but the the whole point of what God is doing in, in showing grace is that they would forsake those practices and rather serve the living and true God. They point to God's common grace as a witness to who he is, that, that he's a God who has always blessed all people with his goodness. He's given them rain and food and gladness. That he is not swayed by sacrifices, but he instead showers grace on the evil and on the righteous alike in the hopes of bringing them to faith. We're told that they scarcely restrained the people from offering the sacrifice. So they, they can hardly get them to stop doing what they're doing. But they eventually do. And soon they have another problem. Jews from Antioch and Iconium have showed up in Lystra. This could have been the same day. Could have been later on in the same week or maybe weeks later. We note the sad irony that Paul and Barnabas had traveled far distances to proclaim the good news. But this group has traveled far distances to shut them up. And so they stir up the crowd to the point that they go from wanting to offer these men sacrifices as gods to instead stoning Paul and dragging him out of the city once they presume that he's dead. But he's not dead. I don't think this is resurrection, but it's certainly miraculous to survive a stoning and they are mistaken. The disciples gather around. I assume they were praying. Not sure what was happening as they gathered around Paul. But he rises up and he leaves town. Actually, not yet. He doesn't leave town right away, does he? Everyone goes back into the same city. They walk back into the city where Paul had been stoned. I can imagine what it would have been like to see Paul walking back in. I don't think this is stupidity. Rather, this shows the depth of Paul's love for others and the longing that Paul has for people to come to faith in Christ. They do leave the next day. Uh, They go to Derby, Not the E-R-B-Y. That could be confused in this town, I guess. Uh, Derby, uh, with an E at the end, where they preach the gospel. They make many disciples. And that's all the detail we really have about Derby. There was probably some similar opposition, but nothing specific is mentioned. A derby is their turnaround point. Uh, they retrace their steps back through the cities that they had just been in, back through these places of opposition, but also places that now they found brothers and sisters in Christ. Just think about what those reunions would have been like as Paul and Barnabas come back through to see how they're growing. Places with new churches. And at every stop, verses 21 to 23 tell us that they're strengthening the disciples They're appointing elders to lead all these fellowships of believers. And they're committing the people to the care of the Lord. Eventually they get on a boat bound for Antioch, where they had been sent out from. And we find that they spend a good bit of time in Antioch sharing the first missionary slideshow or PowerPoint presentation, you know, reporting on what had happened. 
Um, and they highlight the fact that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's what's most surprising about what's going on here, is how wide that door of faith to the Gentiles is being opened. And in fact, that's going to set us up for what happens in chapter 15, which we'll look at next week. But for now, just reflect on what we've just read. In Iconium, there's this great number of people, Jews and Gentiles, who believe, but Paul and Barnabas have to leave because there's a death threat. In Lystra, Paul heals a man, which almost leads to the people offering a sacrifice to him and to to Barnabas. And then that almost ends with the arrival of a a mob showing up, and it does end with the arrival of a mob that shows up and convinces the crowd to stone Paul. And so they leave and go to Derby, and in Derby, many people believe and disciples are made. And then to each of these cities, Paul and Barnabas return and strengthen and establish fellowship of believers, fellowships of believers. So these are the details that we, we know. So many details we don't know. What, what was it like to travel to each of these cities? What was the travel itself like? The boat trips and the sleeping out at night where the, you know, the torrential rainstorms that probably came, the, the heat of the sun, where did they sleep? How were they insulted? How many bruises did they bear on their bodies? How swollen was Paul's face when he preached the gospel in Derby? How powerful would it have been to hear him encourage the believers from town to town, coming back through, encouraging them to persevere through troubles after having just witnessed him almost martyred in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas show us that the path of the faithful follower of Jesus always goes through troubles on the way to the kingdom of God. They inspire us. I think that's right. It's good to have heroes from the scriptures. And these men are not perfect, but they are heroes of the faith. They inspire us. They give us an example to walk down this path. And in this example, there's practical steps for how we are to endure and persevere through the troubles that we are certainly going to face. Because life is hard. And life is full of troubles and difficulties. We may not be stoned by an angry mob or run out of town for preaching the gospel. We shouldn't forget that people still are, though. As we think about our own troubles, don't forget that there's people like Dr. Anjaniya Swami. I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name, but I want to say it to honor this man. Two years ago, he was attacked by an angry mob for passing out gospel tracts near a Hindu temple in India. And to this day, two years later, he's still recovering from the injuries that he faced. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? There are people that face those kind of troubles. But even if we're not attacked for sharing the gospel, we will face trouble. And knowing that is half the battle. Knowing that we will face troubles is half the battle. So the first practical application I think that we find as we think about this this path that includes trouble on the way to the kingdom of God, the first practical thing to think about is expect trouble. Expect trouble. Expect hardship. Expect difficulty. Did you expect to see snow when you woke up this morning? I think most of us did. We expected it. And if you did, then then knowing is half the battle, isn't it? If you didn't expect any snow and you woke up and it was there, that would be an issue. But we, we knew it was coming. And so preparation 
is key. You knew it might take a little bit longer to get here. You, you knew that the parking lot was going to be slick. You knew that it was going to be cold. And so you prepared mentally and in other ways for snow. And if Paul tells us that we as followers of Jesus, and remember, he's just talking to members of the church when he's speaking in verse 22. If he tells us that as followers of Jesus, we will go through troubles, then we can prepare our minds and our hearts for that. Embrace that reality. Expect troubles on the path to the kingdom of God. Eugene Peterson sets us up to embrace that reality in a unique way in this book that I'm reading called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Here's how he begins one of his chapters. The moment we say no to the world and yes to God, all our problems are solved. All our questions are answered. All our troubles are over. Nothing can disturb the tranquility of the soul at peace with God. Nothing can interfere with the blessed assurance that is well between that it is that all is well between me and my Savior. Nothing and no one can upset the enjoyable relationship that has been established by faith in Jesus Christ. We Christians are among that privileged company of persons who don't have accidents, who don't have arguments with our spouses, who aren't misunderstood by our peers, whose children do not disobey us. If any of those things should happen, a crushing doubt, a squall of anger, a desperate loneliness, an accident that puts us in the hospital, an argument that puts us in the doghouse, a rebellion that puts us on the defensive, a misunderstanding that puts us in the wrong. It is a sign that something is wrong with our relationship with God. We have consciously or unconsciously retracted our yes to God, and God, impatient with our fickle faith, has gone off to take care of someone more deserving of his attention. Is that what you believe? If it is, I have some incredibly good news for you. You are wrong. (laughs) If that's what you think, whether consciously or subconsciously, Paul reminds us that it's through many troubles and trials and difficulties and hardships that we get to the kingdom of God. And I think that's speaking of persecutions, but I think that's also speaking of just the things that we face every day in our lives. I don't think expecting troubles makes us pessimists who always assume that the worst is going to happen. But rather, it does make us not surprised when the world opposes us or when the gospel is mocked or when things are hard. We're not shaken by the presence of difficulty or trouble in our lives because we know that it's through trouble that we're going to get to the kingdom of God. I don't think it makes us gluttons for punishment either. We're not seeking to be mocked. We're not trying to be ridiculed for what we do. Some people are. That's ridiculous. (laughs) We don't invite trouble into our lives. But we don't make it our goal to avoid trouble at all costs. At least I hope we don't. If I'm honest with myself, sometimes I do. The goal is to avoid pain. The goal is to avoid difficulty. To not any pain that comes means something is not right. And my goal in pain is to get out as quick as possible. But you look at Paul and Barnabas. They walk into cities where where they know there, there could be trouble. And then they walk back into cities where they had already faced trouble. And so too, we need to step into places. We need to step in front of people. We need to step into circumstances that we know will cause difficulty. We expect it. Trouble follows us in this life. 
because of sin and because that's the path that we're on. We don't dwell on the troubles that we face. We're not, we're not Eeyores recounting our difficulties or seeking sympathy from anyone who will give it or talking about how everyone is against us in this world. Woe is me. We share our burdens as necessary, but we also have expected trouble. And so expecting trouble means that we move through these difficulties by God's grace rather than just sitting in them and wallowing in them like pigs in the mud. We expect them. Let's move through them and learn from them. Alongside, just sort of running parallel to expecting trouble, we also expect grace. We expect grace. God's grace. We expect grace not absent from trouble, but within the trouble that we face in life, within the difficulties. We should note that Paul and Barnabas, in reporting to the church in Antioch, highlight God's grace to them in opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. I'm sure that they told people about their troubles. They had to have, because Luke has the information here. So we know about their troubles because they told someone. But they emphasize God's goodness to them. They don't come back and complain. They come back and rejoice at what God had done. And so too, we need to, as we walk through life, we we are realistic about the troubles that we face. We don't deny it. We recognize it. And even in the midst of it, we can see God's grace and we highlight God's grace. We're expecting God's grace in our lives. I see three kinds of grace in this passage. Three kinds of grace that we can expect. The first is supernatural grace. Supernatural grace. I'm making categories of grace. I don't know that these are hard and fast, but this is how we'll think about the passage. We see this in people believing in the gospel and enduring in the gospel despite opposition. So God's spirit opens the hearts of people to believe that faith in Jesus, crucified, risen, and coming again, brings forgiveness of sins. And any time that that happens... It's a miracle of God's saving grace. And we should expect God to do that. We should expect that when we rightly proclaim that faith in Christ brings forgiveness, that even in a world that's opposed to Christ, there will be people that God opens their heart to believe and to be saved. That supernatural grace is also seen in these supernatural displays of power in support of the gospel. The healing, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. If our hearts are for God to use signs and wonders to attest to his grace, I believe that we can expect him to work in those kinds of ways. We desire for him to work in unique supernatural, miraculous ways, not for our glory, for our church's glory, but so that people would see His grace and understand His goodness and receive the good news of the gospel, we can expect supernatural grace in our lives and in our church. So we're going through life with our eyes open to some things and we're looking for grace. We're looking for supernatural grace through salvation, and through signs and wonders that point people to God's goodness. 
but we're also aware of and pointing others to God's common grace. Common grace. Paul and Barnabas tried to help those around them to see God's goodness to them in the rain and the food and the gladness that he brings to all people. He did that there in in Lystra. People who were worshiping other gods. He's saying, no, the God, the one true and living God is the one who has provided all these things for you. If the path of discipleship, if the path to the kingdom of God involves trouble, then sometimes we can have our field of vision filled with the trouble that's there. And we forget to see all of the common grace that's there in the midst of the trouble. We can get to the end of the day and just feel tired, beat up. And we can fail to see that God has blessed us with breath in our lungs. He's sustained us. He's provided for us. He's given us good gifts. Even the things that are troublesome for us. Even the things that are difficult. If they were taken away from us, the people that cause us problems, do we want to break those relationships? No, there's common grace all around us. And if we stop and, and instead of counting our troubles, instead choose to count our blessings and to recognize God's common grace, then our gratitude increases. We see how good He really is. We expect grace every day. And when you expect something, don't you see it a lot more often? And as we acknowledge God's common grace in every aspect of our lives, we're also able to point others to it. Just as, as Paul and Barnabas did. We can say to people, don't, don't worship that false God. Worship the true God. He's the one that all these blessings are coming to you from. He's the one who's provided for you. God is a God of grace and goodness. And he's done this so that people would walk after him and, and would know him, would turn from these things. So we see supernatural grace. We can expect common grace in our lives. And a final grace to expect and seek out is what I'll just call communal grace. Communal meaning within a community, within the church. Communal grace. We see this in our passage in the the churches that are forming and that are growing together. Verses 21 through 23 show us the, the grace that's found in the church. In all of these hostile cities, think about this, all these places where there's fighting and stoning and difficulty, in all of those places, there are churches. There are people who would gather together who believed that Jesus was the Savior and they loved one another and they found grace. They were strengthened by the Scriptures. I see that in in verse 22 as, it talks about the strengthening, strengthen, that, that, that Paul and Barnabas, uniquely here twice identified as, as apostles, not capital A apostle, but, but still speaking the truth to the church. They, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Communal grace comes in, in many forms through, through the scriptures as we read them and as we hear them preached. Let me tell you a grace today. The grace is that you're here hearing me say that on the path of a faithful follower of Jesus, you will go through troubles. 
Who told you that this week? Not many people are telling us that. And, and, and we need God's word to correct us and help us see the truth of these things. And so there's a grace in gathering together to hear the word preached. There's a grace in picking up your Bible every day and, and reading these truths. We're strengthened by, by the scriptures. We're strengthened by, by elders. Did you notice in verse 23 that it says that they appointed elders for them in every church? Plural elders. That's the pattern that we try to follow here, that there's multiple leaders within each church. And there's a common grace that's a part of this community, which is found in elders and leaders and deacons that want to encourage you to, to, to continue in the faith and want to support you. There's a grace too that's just a part of the community. Verse 23 is interesting. It says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It depends on your translation, but some seem to say that this, this committing them to the Lord is referring to the elders. And I think it also could be referring to the, the church itself, that, that Paul and Barnabas committed the entire church to the Lord. And that's sort of how I take it. It says that they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We assume that the elders had believed in the Lord. So th- there's a, this act of entrusting peep one another to the Lord. There's a sense in which we do that every week as we gather and then as we part. That we're entrusting one another to the Lord. We're in some sense sending one another in the grace of God. Trusting that God is the one who's going to watch over us on this long journey. And trusting that we're surrounded by people that love us. People that are walking this path with us. Church wasn't just something that you had to show up to on Sunday morning in Lystra, was it? In Lystra, it was the place you needed to go to be encouraged, to gather around people that were speaking the truth to you, to be with elders that were helping you understand how to walk your faith, to be around people who loved you and were willing to tell you what was true. I hope we can be like that as a church. We can be a place where the truth is proclaimed, a place where you're encouraged by elders, a place where you're strengthened by one another as we entrust ourselves to the Lord. We need that. We need grace. We we can come to church and expect to find that. The path of the faithful follower of Jesus always goes through troubles on the way to the kingdom of God. On this path, we expect trouble but we also expect grace, supernatural grace, common grace, communal grace found in this place. But just to close then, along with the the trouble that we can expect and the grace that we can expect, we can also expect the kingdom. Expect the kingdom. Any journey that you take is helped by actually knowing where you're going. If there's no destination, a a journey is miserable because then there's no answer to the question, are we there yet? Because you don't even know where you're going. (laughs) Can you imagine taking a, a car trip with small children, I can imagine this, and not knowing where you were going and then hearing them say, are we there yet? And saying, I don't know. But if you know where you're going, if you, if you know the end that you're, that you're getting to, then, then there's comfort in that. So as we go through troubles, we remember that these troubles are on a path 
with an end. And the end is the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says, right? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There's a destination. The, the journey we are on is not pointless and not endless, but it's taking us to the home that our hearts are longing for. This helps me to, to say that there's a way to say to one another in the midst of trouble. There's a way to say, you'll get through this without minimizing the troubles that we go through. That's the one thing I don't want us to think is that there's troubles on this path, but you know, we'll all get through it. It'll be fine. Uh, because sometimes life is just hard and, and that's not helpful. <laughs> but there's a way to say you'll get through this without minimizing the trouble. And I think that has to do with the fact that, that we can keep the kingdom of God central. To say that there, there's an end goal of, the end goal of getting through trouble is not just avoiding pain and being rid of pain, but it's seeing God's kingdom grow in our hearts and then finally see God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That the troubles and the trials and the hardships and the difficulties that we're, that we're going not around and not under and not over, but the things that we're going straight through and enduring, that all of these things are working in us something that looks like the newness and the greatness and the glory of the kingdom of God. That trouble builds that in us and also makes us long for that kingdom. So you can expect the kingdom. Expect that it will come. Expect that it's, the, it's at the end of the path. That that's, that's the journey that we're on. Are we there yet? No. We're not there yet. And I can't tell you how long it's going to be till you or I get there. But we will. We'll get through this. You can expect trouble, but you can expect grace and you can expect to get to the kingdom when all is said and done. No, we're not there yet. But, as we sang, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. And God's grace has brought us safe thus far. And His grace will lead us home.